Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again this week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Yeah, here we are another week another amazing conversation. I'm so happy to be with you, Kara. How are things? Things are great. Um, yeah, lots going on. I was noticing this week um, that, uh, you know, Emily Atkin of Heated, the Heated newsletter, which we've talked about on this podcast before. She was on CNN recently. And um, she was talking about something that I think has an interesting parallel for the built environment. Um, she was talking about the issue about how every reporter should be a climate reporter and that all of those reporters should be connecting um, extreme weather and various climate things to fossil fuels. And it it struck me, I mean, while I agree with it definitely in general, it really struck me as having a cool built environment parallel in the sense that, you know, everything we do in the built environment is a climate action one direction or another right? We're either yeah. contributing to a drawdown or we're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it that. has human impacts too in, along those lines. So that just kind of. Yeah, that's lovely. And also cheers for Emily on being on CNN. That's Indeed. very exciting. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, think I, I, I love her. And if you're not already uh, subscribed to her newsletter, it's a great one. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, I love that in particular, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a friend um, who basically reached out saying, you know, I work in an architecture, it's, no, really more of like a kind of a, a firm that's not an architecture firm per se. It's like a, you know, somewhere in the space between development and owners repping and like architects work there and stuff. And she said, basically, I, I want, I've been feeling like I need to do more about climate in my work. And I don't really want to go the sort of standard route of lead certifications and stuff like we already do that in our firm, there's already things. But like, what could I be doing that I haven't thought of? You seem like someone that thinks about this expansively. What are your thoughts? And I was, I was so struck by that because in a sense, it it does speak to me. Obviously, as like a bit of a failure of our of our community that people in the built environment professions don't feel like they have an obvious place to go um, because we've codified so much of it that it doesn't even really resonate at that deeper level anymore. If you see what I mean, I do. Uh, that is disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> frankly, but also like. Good on her for reaching yes. out. Indeed. <laughs> no, absolutely. But call yeah. to action to some of the rest of us, particularly those of us in the communication side of things, because yeah. I think that reveals a gap. Um, yeah, yeah. I, but I think it's cool because it, it is sort of saying like we need to all treat, you know, we should all think of ourselves, even if we're not like the full time, you know, sustainability people. Uh, we should think of our all of ourselves as 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 climate people in in the built environment. You know, absolutely. Like it's just you may not it may not be in your title, but um, I like the point that Emily's making because yeah, she's just pointing out that so much of journalism touches on something that relates to climate, and if we had more of that kind of getting you know spliced in in the 
appropriate moments. Right. Well, this is actually, I mean, it, it's also, it relates directly to the whole issue of because we had to define sustainable design as something separate from design generally. And we did that like 20 some years ago, <clears throat> 30 years ago. Now we're suffering, the, we're trying to unsilo it, right? Like we, we have to un, we have to break it out of that silo and remind everyone that it's actually part of design, every design, yes. all the yes. time, right? That's the whole integrated, not integrated problem. I mean, we had to break it out to define it and make it clear to everyone, but, but that has, it has a negative outcome because um, the silo, once it's there, is very hard to undo, I think. Yeah, but just like climate journalism, for example, no one's really going to argue that like, oh, well, nobody should be explicitly covering climate in, right. the, in media. You need mm -hmm. people to do that and to, you know, have that be their beat. But then also everybody yes. else needs to, yeah. Yeah, it's both. It's both for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah. to your point, you know, everyone who's dealing with real estate not just design and building, but real estate broadly. Yeah. It, it should be addressing this and understanding it, even if they haven't specialized in sustainability, to your point. Yes. And anyway. this conversation could not be a better way for us to <laughs> tee up our guest for the day, who I know has some thoughts on this. Um, welcome, Katie Ackerley. Oh, God. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. We are very honored to have you. Uh, this is going to be super fun. Um, we have so much to get into, and yeah, I, I don't, I, we don't plan these things as much that we're going to say ahead of time. But like, I do feel like we just really did a good job of teeing up Katie. So, for those yeah, of you we're going to solve Katie, sustainability right now. Yeah, right now. <laughs> Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to tell everyone who you are. So um, Katie is a principal at David Baker Architects and the firm's sustainable design lead. Uh, she is committed to elevating the critical importance of high performance, equitable housing as the essential core of a successful, resilient future. She came to architecture from energy efficiency policy and holds graduate degrees in both architecture and building science from UC Berkeley which is where we met um, in the, at the Center for the Built Environment program there. And we have been very close friends ever since. So this is a special episode for me in that way, as a few of them have been. Gail Breger was our advisor, who's also been on the show. And um, yeah, so I am particularly delighted to have Katie on. And um, although I know this path, I can't wait for you to share with our listeners sort of, you know, how you got where you got in the world of architecture and sustainability. Um, so yeah, Katie, if you could share with us what your path has been so far. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it started um, in high school, really, because I had the opportunity to take some architecture courses and really enjoyed them and sort of um, you know, my, my parents were nowhere near this industry and what they did. So this was all kind of a new discovery that you could kind of design, you know, your physical world and um, something about just, you know, envisioning, you know, a story and, and a new environment was really appealing to me. Um, I was actually kind of hesitant, though, to pursue that right away <laughs> in undergrad. I, I wasn't sort of done learning about um, I don't know, other options or other opportunities. So 
Um, I ended up studying geology um, at a liberal arts school. Um, but it was interesting. That was another kind of like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. Um, and it scratched a similar itch, I think, because um, geoscientists is like, it's basically the practice of figuring out a story about the past through kind of observation and a, a very sort of tangible science where you're really like looking for evidence and piecing together a story in plan and section even. Um, whereas sort of architecture I see as a kind of the flip side of doing that for a kind of an imagined future. Um, so, but that was still kind of like, what do I do with this? <laughs> and uh, I ended up in DC after college. Um, I was really interested in this um, question of, of how these earth science issues, you know, whether it's energy, air, oceans, um, or even just like collecting data about the world, um, how they were kind of were intersected with a more public application or public discourse. Um, so I worked in DC representing um, earth scientists at this sort of advocacy organization and then um, uh, saw kind of, that was actually in 2005 when they were um, running through the Energy Policy Act and through sort of tracking that discovered energy efficiency is like another like, oh, <laughs> this is a really big deal. Um, you know, if they don't sort of teach you this in school, if you're, or at least they didn't at the time for me, um, you know, if you're interested in, you know, building better and reducing your environmental impact, energy efficiency, um, just being efficient as this resource was kind of a, a big discovery for me. I think I've always sort of gravitated to topics that seem really fundamental, but um, at least to me at the time weren't quite invisible. Um, so anyway, I went engaged in energy efficiency, worked at um, ACEEE, American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. Um, and that kind of circled me back to buildings because <laughs> buildings were always in the back of my head, but now I kind of had a rational reason for getting um, back in sort of entering the industry with like a focus for graduate school. So that's what brought me to Berkeley. That's wonderful, Katie. Um, I, I love that idea too. It sort of seems like a more, I don't know, organic educational evolution <laughs> that, that landed you back at architecture. <laughs> um, it's very cool. Uh, so I'm curious though, why did you decide to shift from, from policy to practice and what has that shift been like for you? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, it's sort of like, um, it was invigorating and also a little startling to realize that DC is really run by 20 somethings out of college. Um, I don't really know a lot about what they're working on. Um, but anyway, yeah, I was sort of fascinated by kind of the macro policy level um, solutions to this sort of idea of, you know, we need to build better buildings. But I kind of, I realized that I would sort of remain clueless about the whole thing. and unless I understood better how decisions were actually made on the ground. Um, so at that point, I, I felt like I really need, you know, to really understand buildings, I need to sort of be in, in practice in the industry. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, my, my plan at the time was to sort of get into the profession, which is, you know, it's like a 10 year commitment between school and getting into practice, getting licensed and like learning how to be an architect. It takes years and years. Um, so, but, you know, then I was going to sort of get enlightened and be able to go back and say, hey, you know, this research or these policies would, you know, really be 
um, uh, better suited to kind of the on the ground practice needs if they you know looked this way. Um, so that was sort of my idea. I was right about um, the two worlds being like completely different, um, which was really interesting. These two completely different networks, um, both focused on you know designing, building better buildings, um, but really no interaction is um, between the two. So it took me really many years before I felt like I could even speak the language um, <laughs> that others around me responded to in practice when it when it came to you know trying to improve um, energy efficiency in our projects, but then you know that expanding to other ways of kind of uh, furthering our practice. Um, and now it's sort of I feel like I've gained some traction on you know the priorities that we want to tackle for making our practice sort of smarter and um, more impactful, um, but it's really taken a long time. Well, absolutely. I think you have gained that traction, certainly. I mean, I think you're really seen as a leading voice on that. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about the practice and what maybe what people should know about working in affordable housing. For those that don't know, David Baker Architects is really an expert in that type as well. They do other uh, work, but affordable housing is really, they've done amazing uh, award-winning work in affordable housing. And um, so you're at a firm where that's a practice focus. Tell us a little bit about what that's like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really exciting. Um, I, I really value the firm's kind of um, focus in, in one sector. I mean, we, we've really expanded from that sector, but, which I also think is good. You know, we do a lot of mixed use housing. So now we've done some childcare centers and retail, some other of those kind of ground floor uses. We do hospitality, um, but that kind of core of housing has really enabled the firm to sort of, I mean, one thing is just to kind of really iterate um, from project to project. Uh, the other advantage is that also until fairly recently really have grown the, the practice in the, in the Bay Area. So dealing with a lot of, um, local challenges becoming better versed in the kind of policy surrounding housing, which is, um, you know, has an incredible, an incredibly complicated uh, legacy of how we use land, um, you know, how zoning restrictions kind of enter into this conversation about, you know, providing enough housing, making sure the housing is, um, is sort of long lasting and safe for people. So we've sort of, been able to really immerse ourselves in that whole kind of holistic conversation around just the practice of design itself. Um, and I think one thing the firm's really, I mean, David Baker has really made, is known for is the kind of elevating design of a type that was sort of, um, I don't know, sort of set aside or forgotten about in many ways. So um, just sort of kind of bringing kind of, you know, the idea of high design, I guess, to, to housing. Um, but it's, you know, there's a lot in terms of sustainable design, it's, uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that you might carry um, into housing that doesn't quite work uh, once you get there. And that, I mean, that's everything from like, you know, optimal sunshades to, um, um, I don't know, like, like, I guess an example of like some conventional wisdom when I came, you know, from this world of energy efficiency thinking, oh yeah, I'll just, 
you know, obviously these people are, you know, experts in, in green affordable housing. They certainly know about like back-to-back -back plumbing and demand control, hot water, <laughs> unit compartmentalization. And I sort of had to slowly unlearn that, or there were like good reasons why some of those things were either people were unaware of them or contractors didn't do them for one reason or another. And um, kind of having to, to sort of piece together, you know, what the right kind of set of questions and priorities were for this housing type. Um, sort of like reinventing all of that from what I kind of assumed um, with my background so far. I love that, Katie. And I think you've done an amazing job at that, actually, and really creating a, an approach to sustainability that is unique to the type and, and really acknowledges the realities of the clients their financing and all of the complexities that go along with that type while really staying true to this notion that the dignity of good design is really, you know, for everyone and that you shouldn't necessarily be able to tell like an affordable housing project from any other housing project in a neighborhood right. and that they all bring good things to the neighborhood, all of that. Yeah. I think it's very powerful. Um, I wanted to shift gears just slightly and ask, um, a question we like to ask our guests, which is really, what are you most proud of accomplishing in your work life? Could be anything. That's <laughs> really tough. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing I think of, it just goes back to the my stories, just like I've stuck with it for, I've been at David Baker for about, you know, almost 10 years. And, um, you know, before that I'd switched gears completely in terms of what my interests were. Um, about every four years, several times. And I kind of sort of knowing that kind of on the theory that if you stay in one place long enough, you can go deeper into a problem and, and build some leadership there. I kind of told myself like, no matter, you know, what you struggle with in this phase, just, you know, stick with it. And I think, I think I was right about that. I think it sort of um, has paid off. Um, because it was not without its challenges, as I said, sort of coming in from my own perspective into this sort of new world of um, uh, people, you know, I guess with their own sets of priorities or questions, you know, they ask of themselves and, and you know, I guess their own success criteria. Uh, I work with a lot of people who are very uh, mission driven also, as well as me, which is one of the great things about our firm. Um, and most people have sort of entered that from um, a perspective of sort of public interest design and kind of the, the social dimensions of architecture. Um, and that just, it just means it's a completely sort of different set of, um, of questions, you know, that, that bring them into practice. And so coming in with my kind of like green building background, um, it took some some kind of, like I said before, adjusting and really kind of uh, building sort of the right language. Um, um, but, you know, I think, I think sticking with it was, um, was really worth it. And um, I, it's hard because I don't, <laughs> I can't really, I do think I've accomplished a lot, but it sort of feels like the main thing is just looking back and realizing how much I've learned um, about a challenge that a lot of people have been hammering on, um, so. I love that. I, I'm not surprised that that's how you would think about it. But I do want to highlight like how profound this is, this idea that 
um, I don't know, it's something about affordable housing as a practice that feels unique to me, what you were saying about how it, it and how David Baker has approached it, it like it, because you all approach it as a firm um, in, a, in a really intentional way, it means that there's all of this, all these policy layers, all, you know, obviously all the layers around sustainability. So it's like a pretty unique fit for your background that you had some um, experiences outside of just like the very narrowness of what architecture can be. Um, and right. yeah, and that that would be like, it in of itself is hard. And and I mean, I want, I want to talk a little bit more about your role, because I think um, part of what is cool about the way you've taken on this role of, of being a sustainable design leader in a firm is that, yeah, you're kind of bringing all of this past experience to it that I think helps round it out a lot more, like gives you a better perspective on it. Um, and I, I know plenty of people who are still trying to get that role. Um, they want to be a sustainability person in an architecture firm, whether they're in an architecture firm and they care about sustainability and have kind of do it a little bit and they're trying to like angle to get it to be full time or whatever. Um, I just would, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, you're, you're sitting in that role as the person, um, uh, the main person anyway, um, that <laughs> deals with sustainability within your firm. Um, can you talk about the challenges of integrating sustainability? Uh, it's the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the show, rather than sort of defining it as a separate activity or a separate practice or, you know, how do you see that? How do you navigate that? What's working for you? Yeah, exactly. It's such a tough dilemma. <laughs> As you know, I think, yeah, you, you kicked off the show really well. Um, and then I think it's true that it really is not just in our industry, it's in journalism, it's, it's everywhere. Um, I think the first thing to recognize in answering that question and, and why it's, it, it can feel like we're kind of stuck, you know, we're, we're unable to unsilo, is that there's a, a legacy to, um, to green building and sort of as an offshoot of environmentalism, let's say, and it really kind of is a subculture as much as we don't wanna kind of admit that, you know, we, we know that that's true because there are people that self-identify as like interested in sustainable design or not, which is funny because, you know, everyone is interested in, you know, the, the, the thriving and survivability of their families and, you know, um, on this planet. And so there's, there is some way we need to break through the kind of, um, the, the sort of legacy of how it came to be a sort of affinity group, I think. Um, and some of that I think is sort of nestled in um, a kind of um, elitism maybe, you know, I think I think at some point it, it comes down to like, maybe we're not asking the right questions or maybe we're not the right people um, to yeah. ask the questions or like, how can we basically listen to what people care about authentically, and then find how that links up to what we care about and enter that way. So that's a mm -hmm. little bit what I've started to do in our firm. Um, yeah, like, like all firms, we've had this problem of like having the sustainability committee. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's about four steady people that meet, you know, in a firm of, of now 60, um, 
And it's like, well, we're clearly not the only four people that care about sustainable design in this firm, but somehow it's this sort of self-selected group of people who, um, you know, wants to sort of devote time to kind of pushing certain things forward that, that, that sort of deal in, I guess, the metrics, right, that we expect to use to track success and performance of our projects. But when you actually talk to people in the office, everyone is interested in design excellence. They might just sort of understand it in different terms or identify with it differently. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, one thing we've done is um, what, what, actually something I started this year to sort of break through that as we try to kind of set a, a next chapter of our kind of action plan is to do a reading group. And we started with All We Can Save and we're doing both books related to kind of housing um, as well as climate change, but all sort of vision-oriented, action-oriented. The idea is to sort of build a common literacy, but also, um, I don't know, just have an open dialogue and make sure that the office is a safe space to kind of talk about things that might be more difficult to talk about. Um, and that has mm. unearthed a lot of kind of authentic interests and, and fear and questions that people have about like, their role um, at the firm and their interest in securing a stable future and, and through their work. Um, so that's been one interesting tool. But I'll just yeah. say one more thing, I think. <laughs> Sorry, I, love it. Uh, I think it's both. Like at the same time, it does make sense that there is someone in the office that's like losing sleep over certain aspects of building performance that um, that you know are not as emphasized in our schooling or aren't explicitly requested for by clients, I think there is still a need for someone to bridge that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And I think to some degree, there's maybe like a detangling, at least for us in our little world that could happen between sort of, you know, a, a professional commitment and caring about climate change versus like building science as a as like a set of things that you learn how to do um and yeah yeah but I love all of that and I hope that's inspiring to other people as well I always grappled with that at, at WeWork the balance of wanting to channel all of this positive energy that we had from like thousands of people across the company to do positive things to help the environment within the scope of their jobs but then also needing to say like, yeah, but you can't really do a life cycle analysis just like casually, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to have somebody and that's why our team is here and we will help you do that thing, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I think, um, I don't know, hopefully we're all getting a, a little bit better at balancing that. Um, but speaking of a nerdy aspect of, I would call it, this is not a thing that has to be siloed into the professional realm of building science, but you've done a lot of interesting work on, um, uh, I'm going to say how your firms are, your, your firm's buildings are performing after people have moved in. Um, so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about feedback. Yeah, totally. And this is a good example of, you know, uh, how I sort of had to kind of relearn or translate, um, you know, kind of principles that I, or, you know, thought were important before entering practice to sort of what practice actually asked of me to, to, to reach those goals. So basically, you know, coming out of Center for the Built Environment for people that don't know, or I don't know how much Gail talked about this and 
in her episode, but um, you know, one of the main things they are known for is this um, resident post-occupancy survey questionnaire. Um, and that's something that I worked with quite a bit in my studies there. And so of course I enter David Baker, who's basically had three decades of multifamily housing. And I'm just, my first thought is like, man, this firm is sitting on a mountain of data <laughs> in a sector that is really lacking for data. So we, you know, we need a POE process. Um, but it took me years actually to really, again, gain traction. The, the first sort of times that I brought it up and the ways that I did got a lot of skepticism. Um, there, were, there were a lot of roadblocks. There was also just like, how do I, you know, get a client interested in doing this? Um, so, I mean, I think maybe part of the, the weight was just building some of those relationships, but also in the office kind of, um, finding common ground with, with others about what the kind of power and value of that kind of process could, could look like. So finally, I think, I don't know, a few years after I started, we did find an opportunity with, a, um, with actually a, a client we hadn't worked for, um, Bridge Housing, who we'd done a lot of work for going back decades, um, but hadn't happened to do a project with them in a while. So it was actually not with a recently completed project, but the opportunity came in pre-design for a new project. And I think that was the, one of the, these big aha moments that it kind of seems obvious to me now, but um, you know, we really in our industry frame post-occupancy evaluation as sort of the end of the process. I mean, there's always you know, a diagram that's a, a circle, right? <laughs> the feedback loop. But when it's talked about, it's talked about as like you complete the building, you wait a year or two, and then you do some studies and a survey. And then, you know, maybe you get a lead credit for that, or maybe you have a report that you get to sort of have something to show for that process. But I think there's, you know, information like that is most actionable right when the people are starting to make decisions. And so it made a lot more sense. Um, naturally, especially if, you know, these clients are not ones that like have a lot of fee for something like this, but there was sort of inherent value that everyone agreed on to doing this process um, at the start of a project. So what we did was we um, went around to five projects um, and did a kind of <laughs> loose bootleg, uh, what I call a structured site walk, which is really just walking the, the job with the client team, um, as well as the property manager and operations person. And rather than just sort of walking around unscripted, there was a matrix of you know, places to visit and things to sort of observe in each place. So you made sure to kind of check that you were covering a kind of comprehensive amount of ground and not missing something that might otherwise be kind of overlooked. Um, we also did like a, a staff survey. They didn't want to interview residents in, in those projects. Um, and that there was actually a woman um, who's funded through the AIA last year to do a sort of a review of different firms evaluation processes, especially for housing projects, and found that a lot of people did this kind of thing where they were doing these kinds of um, uh, various kind of like loose, not super structured evaluation techniques um, before a project and sort of called it a, a feed forward approach. 
So this is something that actually might, the structured site walk might get developed into something that the AIA kind of encourages people to do. Um, I guess the other thing about housing is that the sort of classic satisfaction surveys, it's pretty obvious that they weren't really gonna work very well. Um, first, there's sort of like language that's fairly academic that might not be as immediately accessible or relevant to people who are just sort of like living their lives, dealing with everyday basic challenges. Um, and, uh, and then there's actual <laughs> multilingual populations and how much then that language gets retranslated. You know, you really, it, it makes a lot more sense to, um, to talk to people, first of all, to actually meet with them, either do focus groups or my favorite is a more kind of structured interview where you get to kind of collect tabulated data, but you're asking follow-up questions, you're making sure they kind of understand your, the intent of your question. Um, and, so, and so we've done that a number of times and, and it's been really illuminating. That's amazing. I love all of that. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about some of those barriers that you would have faced uh, in just, you know, taking the, I don't know, the, the stereotypical satisfaction surveys um, and applying it to these very unique situations. Um, so yeah, that's cool. I'm excited. And I'm glad to know that you all have built something that, I don't know, that works enough that other people can maybe use it. Um, so let's talk uh, about like right now, um, what are you working on? What are you grappling with uh, these days? What's on your mind? Oh, wow. Well, you guys ask the tough questions here <laughs> on the That's Design the Future podcast. Yeah. <laughs> In the hard questions. Um, I mean, I, I think it, um, it relates a little bit to sort of this process of discovery um, in, in the post-occupancy work, I guess another example of that is just, you know, when, when you enter, you know, we have a whole sort of series of things that we associate with like um, climate responsive housing, right? We sort of like go to sort of resource efficiency, energy, water, first, materials, waste, um, ecological impacts. It's sort of like, let's reduce the impact of the buildings, right? That's sort of the legacy of where this whole movement, industry, whatever we want to call it, started. Um, but when you sort of start asking these questions in housing, you realize, oh, there's all this other stuff <laughs> that's, that's important and, and more important. And I think like, for example, in like a, an indoor environmental quality survey, right, those standard IEQ topics, um, you know, thermal comfort, lighting, acoustics are really important. And in addition to that, like housing performance from the perspective of human experience is about so much more. And so these surveys can get a lot bigger. It's like, wait, but I need to talk about how people feel in their community. Like, do they feel safe, right? Is there access to, to transit or how do we wanna ask those questions? Um, there's a number of things about the overall building and how it's working for them, how it's working for the operators of the building. And then, then you get to the individual home. So there's all these layers of, of human experience that are actually pretty important to probe. Um, and so we've started asking questions like, you know, what makes you feel at home or what would make life easier? Um, and that's so that's cool. kind of what I've been 
grappling with. It's like, I mean, now you see so much attention, which is great, um, being focused on kind of decarbonizing housing. There's a big, there's great reason for that. It's, you know, especially with all the uh, fossil fuel powered hot water systems and multifamily buildings, new and existing, it's a big opportunity um, to decarbonize. And then there's also a lot of money in the state for affordable housing that have kind of kept that sector more stable. Um, and so you see a lot of people getting into cracking this sort of code or, you know, <laughs> going towards this holy grail of like the bureau carbon housing. And it's a struggle for me because I feel like from a policy perspective or the, how sort of research or programs are framed, it's still coming from that perspective of, um, you know, the first goal being reducing greenhouse gas emissions or like reaching energy performance targets. There's the same approach we've taken over the last 20 years to kind of improve buildings. Um, and, and then there's a lot of focus on technology, right? A lot of time spent on thinking about, okay, what technologies can be sort of brought to bear to improve housing. And along the way, you know, you're able to kind of applaud being able to provide these innovative technologies to vulnerable communities. And sort of, it's sort of like, okay, we're, we're doing sustainability, we're doing social equity, but it also in, along the way kind of really ignores the fundamental ways that housing matters to climate change response. You know, like what's the value of housing to society? Number one, I think the next question to ask is like, uh, why is it so expensive to build? You know, if we can tackle the construction market and the problems with that, that would go a long way to kind of increasing the performance and resilience of homes. What makes people's, what about a home, I guess, improves the ability for people just to, to basically have a, a stable, thriving life, um, to uh, allow them to stay safe and well in their home when there's a wildfire or uh, any kind of a heat wave or any kind of fallout from climate change, especially. So there's all these kind of initial questions, I think, that are really essential to ask before you kind of use housing as your vehicle for reducing emissions, if that makes sense. Um, and I think just to be clear, like passive house and zero net energy goals are, are not inherently in conflict, right? It's just that if you start from those, that set of questions, um, I worry that sort of fundamental resilience of homes gets a backseat. Yeah, yeah, I totally see. And there's a parallel here with just this larger question of, you know, unifying movements. And if we are really treating climate action as, as a, a part of a larger movement where social justice action um, is equally valued, which I, I think when you think about it from that angle, I think more people have come to agree with that point that we can't solve the climate problem without solving our economic problems, without yeah. solving our social problems. And um, housing is like get there, you know, at the very basis of those problems. Yeah, yeah exactly. The housing yeah. itself. So we all need to start from that same page, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, well, so speaking of these larger <laughs> movement questions, <laughs> we solved it. Yeah, cool. high fives. Yeah, uh, no, I think, um, yeah, 
we hopefully we helped other people to some degree. Um, let's <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about that more broadly, though. Um, I like to ask this question. We like to ask this question on the podcast sometimes about um, being a part of a movement. So the green building industry, um, which you have described at this point in a few different ways, we also think about it as a movement. So I want to hear your thoughts on whether you feel like you're a part of an industry or part of a movement um, or both, or sort of how do you situate those questions for yourself? Oh, man. Me personally, if I'm a part of a movement or an industry. Yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever it brings to mind. Well, I mean, I think, and I love, um, who did you have on the, on the pod not long ago? Chandra Farley, I think, answered this yeah. question really well. She just, she sort of can't see it as a movement. I do, I mean, the first thing I think of, I don't think that, you know, the green building industry is all about um, USGBC's leadership in the last 20 years, but I do think that kind of dominated the, the paradigm, um, which is one of kind of market transformation. And it was unprecedentedly successful in, you know, making people want to buy and sell different things, essentially. Um, but you can only shift that behavior so far as a solution to some of those root causes that we were talking about, like industry transformation is really what we need right now. And it just goes much further than uh, market transformation. So um, that's how, I mean, I don't know if that answers the question directly, but that's how I see it. This sort of a movement feels more like industry transformation and that starts somewhere much deeper than the market transformation that's sort of dominated. Well, I think that makes makes very good sense. Um, well, and whether it's the movement or the industry, where did you think we would be in the 2020s? Oh my God, I don't know. I thought we'd have more luck <laughs> with like federal policy and global commitments, honestly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I had an idea of where we would be, although I I remember so uh, so well. You know, in 2005, sort of seeing 2020 as this milestone, and mm -hmm. and thinking it was far away. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's fascinating right now because a lot of people are talking about. I mean, you hear some organizations making commitments about 2050 and then others their head is exploding about that they're like 2050 is just way too late that's just we don't have that long you know yeah. it's, it's fascinating well what do you yeah. what about the major progress areas um or or lack of progress what are the areas that you're you see as either making good strides or or not doing so well, I am I think one of those people who's thinking kind of like 2030 guys like it's pencils down you know we, <laughs> yeah, we can't be piloting, you know, zero net energy flag, flagship projects anymore. We have to be building now the way we need buildings to be, because we're talking about 10 years, 15 years, um, let alone 30. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I don't really know exactly how to answer this question, but I think uh, part of me just does see a real opportunity with um, the upset that the last year mm -hmm. um, brought us. It really kind of stirred the pot, I guess. And um, I mean, and also our politics too. I think there's just a lot more opportunity to just say, you know, 
screw it. Like, <laughs> you know, social norms be damned. This is what we need to be doing now. Um, a lot more sort of uh, willingness to be, to have honest conversations, um, to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I think a little off topic, but I think the work that Brene Brown is doing is actually really relevant to mm. our industry and, and everyone's just this idea that facing the future and having courage um, to lead is about first being vulnerable and being able to sort of be honest about what you're struggling with. Um, that's how you bring people forward. So I know that's kind of gets into the soft underbelly of it, but that's kind of where my head's at in terms yeah. of making progress. Katie, I love that. I think that's so interesting. Um, and it really, yeah, that, that, that one hits home for me this week too, actually. Um, <laughs> I have to, I, I want to close by asking a question that we like to end with, um, which is who are you most inspired by these days in terms of leaders, climate movement leaders or, or, or anyone? Oh man. Um, I do kind of want to <laughs> give one shout out to my parents <laughs> who both in their own way, you know, read uh, or led their kind of careers. Um, and by kind of setting their sights on, on kind of a big goal of, you know, transforming some aspect of our society. My, my dad has led schools for ever innovated schools. And my mom was um, involved in interfaith peace building. And I think it just, they really passed on to me this idea that it's like, oh, obviously my purpose in life is to figure out like the meaning of life and say, right guys, right? We're all doing that, right? Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having, having met Katie's parents, I can say that that is how they raise people. Uh, it's amazing. And yeah, shout out to Rick and Sally. <laughs> Yay. Yay, Rick and Sally. Um, but I think more sort of closer to the, to our community, I also just want to highlight Arlene Bloom, which is someone that I've had the pleasure of kind of getting to know her work and her more closely over the last year or two. Um, I just, yeah, recommend her memoir. It's just an amazing, um, well, badass mountaineer for starters. Led, you know, the first all-women summit of Annapurna and other exploits. Um, but leads the Green Science Policy Institute, which has been incredibly successful in, in actually changing policies around eliminating harmful chemicals from um, household products and um, getting more and more into building materials. Um, and they just have a great science-based approach where um, everyone's a potential partner, right? Like they take a position that no one can really disagree with. And as long as the science supports that you know, these chemicals are in these products and it's causing harm. Let's work together to get them out. And um, so for instance, if they do testing and find that products from a company will contain these bad chemicals, they won't like blacklist them as some sort of, you know, court of public opinion strategy. They really, they actually try to partner with them and kind of ask the question, you know, or, or I guess acknowledge really that chemicals are used for, for convenience in utility in some vein, and um, they're overused. There's a lot of uses that are non-essential, so let's target those first, but let's like work with manufacturers to do that. And I think having that kind of approach, um, I would say <laughs> it aligns with my values. I think it's the right way to make progress. Um, you know, there's no, <laughs> I guess there's one thing you learn from housing is like no one is really a hero or a villain. 
um, actually this book, Golden Gates, that I'm reading right now, I also recommend. Um, it really shows, showcases that with the housing crisis, it's really easy to have your kind of political camp and, but progress is always hampered when you sort of think of yourself as, as the hero and you're fighting a battle against, you know, the, the man <laughs> in some respect. <laughs> so I just, I admire people that, that don't do that. Uh, yeah, that's a lovely one. Thank you. Um, and, and leaving us with another book tip. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're accumulating your own uh, reading list on this pod. You should uh, post it. That's true. That's a good idea. Posting the pod reading list. Kira, we will add it to the to-do list. On it. Thank cool. you. <laughs> <laughs> your abundant spare time. Yeah, that's true. Well, speaking of time, we are out of time. Thank you so much, KB, for joining us this week. It's been amazing to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. It's a, it's a delight uh, to talk to both. Uh, it's been a delight. It's been a delight. I only am sad that we couldn't record this in your backyard or something. Um, that would have been um, <laughs> even more fun, but um, impractical, probably. So next time, next time. Yeah. Uh, so that is it for us this week on the design the future podcast thanks again everyone for listening uh, if you haven't yet please leave us a review on apple it's easy it really matters it helps people find us stay safe and we'll see you next week